So this weekend is a weekend that most people are using to celebrate. And my question as we start, and, and you can throw the answers at me, is what is necessary for a celebration? What, what do you need to have a celebration? Cake? Cake, yeah, absolutely. Okay, cake. What else? People. Cake and people. That's what you need for a celebration. Other than that, you're good. I mean, cake's a good, good thing to celebrate. What else? A reason to celebrate. What else? Joy, happiness. Now, I like that answer that we got. I, cake might be my favorite answer. But before you celebrate, you need a reason to celebrate. If we can think, if we'll just use the example because it is today, today is the 4th of July. What is the reason that people have to celebrate today? Sorry? Birthday of our country? What, what is the day called? Independence Day. Freedom. That's the reason that people have to celebrate. Now, if we were to think about this on the other side of it, though, because I think we're, you know, if you go to different parties, not everyone there is celebrating. There's always going to be someone who this, it's just not their thing to celebrate. What would be the things that keep people from celebrating? I was thinking through this, and I came up with a, with a few different reasons. One thing that would keep people from celebrating is if they don't know about the celebration. If they don't have the information, they don't know what's going on. If they don't know the reason that people are celebrating. Another thing that would keep people from celebrating is if they don't understand. They don't get it. They don't comprehend what's going on. Maybe They've been given the reasons. Maybe they even have some understanding, but they don't believe. They don't accept it. Or maybe, maybe they've done some of those things, but they just don't care. Whatever. You know, it's just no big deal. But sometimes you go to celebrations, and there's just, you have people on this side who just aren't there really celebrating, don't know don't care, don't believe, don't understand. But then there's the other side of it, that, that you just see some people that are just celebrating a little bit more. Now, it might be not because of the reason that's underlying. Maybe it's just because they really like cake. Uh, maybe it's because they like the other festivities that go along with celebration. But have you ever gone to a celebration and you've seen that there's a person that's different, that understands the reason just a little bit more. Maybe it's someone who's traveled overseas. If we're thinking like this 4th of July, maybe it's someone who's traveled overseas and has seen other countries who don't have freedom. Maybe it's someone who has served in our armed forces and knows the price of freedom. And when you observe them in different celebrations, they just seem to have a deeper celebration that there's something going on beneath the surface that they have a little bit more of. When we're thinking about celebration, 
My question is, what is the greatest cause to celebrate? What is the greatest reason for us to celebrate? As we gather as believers every week, we are gathering to celebrate Christ. We are gathering to celebrate the gospel. The gospel of John is written so that we will know who Jesus is. We will know who God, Jesus is, the Son of God, and in knowing that, we would believe. That is the greatest cause of celebration. My question, though, is for us, do we celebrate Jesus? Do we celebrate the gospel truly, deeply? Because if I, if I just think about it, I think that when we lo looked at those reasons of what keeps people from celebrating, we see a lot of those same reasons when it comes to the gospel. There are those who do not celebrate the gospel because they do not know the gospel. There are others who might know of the gospel, but they do not believe the gospel. There are some that believe the gospel, but their depth of understanding is shallow. So it doesn't lead them to more celebration. Or maybe they even have a deeper understanding, but they just don't care. The gospel that John is going to present should not have any of those things. John wants us to know the gospel. He wants us to believe the gospel. He wants us to understand the gospel. And then he wants us to appreciate the gospel, to celebrate the gospel. That's kind of what we saw last week, that there's these two sides for John, that John wants us to know with our head, but then also believe with our heart that both of those things should come together. The general problem is there are unbelievers who might not know, might not believe, and they're not celebrating the gospel, but then there's believers who lack a deeper understanding and lack the care to appreciate the gospel. I've found myself often in that case where I ask myself, do I celebrate the gospel? And the answer is not as often, not as celebratory as I, sh as I should. Our big idea this morning is that God reveals his glory and grace through the word who took on flesh and dwelt in darkness. God reveals his glory and grace through the word who took on flesh and dwelt in darkness. We're going to look at these first verses in the, in the Gospel of John, and these first 18 verses serve as a prologue. Yesterday I was talking to Cindy Rowe about this, and she said that it kind of works like um, Shakespeare does this sometimes in his works, that he starts and he kind of gives, gives you all of the themes in the beginning that are going to show up later. Now I smiled and nodded as if I totally knew that, um, but she's the literature person, she teaches literature, but I'll take her word for it, but we see that in literature, presenting, hey, these are the things. Now, what I responded with was something I knew a little bit more about was in the music world. 
In the music world, you'll see different movies, different operas that do all of the different themes at the beginning. And as you then listen to the rest of the piece, you'll start seeing those things show up later. In this prologue, what we have from John is all of the themes that we're going to see. These main ideas that John wants us to know. But he's going to start with this is who Jesus is. That is the main theme for John. And John's going to function, again, in a literature sense. This one I did know. Um, in the way that if you read books, there's a thing called omniscient narrator. And the omniscient narrator is someone who's recounting a story, but they already know the end. Now, some of the other Gospels that we read are more just telling you the facts as you go. But John works a little different. John explains John already has the big picture in mind. He already says for at the very end what we saw last week, this is why I wrote this. And even now, as he's doing this prologue, he's going to give us those hints, those foreshadowing, this is what I'm doing. God reveals his glory and grace through the word who took on flesh and dwelt in darkness. So let's start where John starts. Who is this Jesus? John starts with the preeminence of Jesus. That Jesus is greater. Jesus is different. Jesus is superior. Look at verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John begins this passage introducing to us a metaphor that he's going to call the Word. Now at this point, we as the readers aren't sure what this Word is. But John does four different statements, each of which give a little bit more information about who or what this Word is. Look at the first statement. In the beginning was the Word. Now, when we see those first three words, in the beginning, what does that make us think of? If you've been around uh, the church for a while, if you've read through the Bible before, what do you think of when you see those three words? Genesis, creation, in the beginning. But the first truth we see here is that the Word has an eternal existence. This word has always been. Now, if we're just reading this straightforward, we could say, well, that might be the case, but it could be that in the beginning, God created this word. Like, it's, it's, it, was, it started at the beginning. Now, the reason that we kind of feel that way is there's this one thing that just, in the English language, that we don't really have when it comes to different verb forms. The verb here that is was is really an imperfect verb, meaning it's a continuing action. It was something that was already there. It's kind of like, and this is not grammatically correct, he was wasing. He already was there. We could read it like this. In the beginning was continuing the word. Or when the beginning began, the world, the word, was already there. 
So the first thing that we learn about this word is that this word is before time. It's different from everything else. It's not like the rest of creation that has a beginning. This word has no beginning. It is infinite. The second phrase, though, so in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Because if we just have the first phrase, we could say, oh, well, yeah, maybe the word is just God the Father. That's what John's talking about. The word was before the beginning. He was already there. So this is God the Father. But then we see this next statement, and no, it's not. Because this word is with God. Meaning, this word is distinct from God. There's the word, and then there's God. But we see the position of the word. The word is in relationship with God. The idea of this with here is that the word is face-to-face with God. That before time began, be in eternity past, the word and God were in relationship. The next statement, though, is that the word was God. This was not some lesser being that was there in the past that is also eternal. It's not some other creation. There are so many different religions that look at Christ and they diminish who he is by saying, oh, well, he's, he's a little G God. But here we see that the word was, in fact, God. John's final statement then restates many of these things. He was in the beginning with God. But what's that first word? He. We're seeing something more, that this is a person. That the word is a metaphor for a person. He was in the beginning with God. Now that's a lot of information about this metaphor, the Word. Now, there's a lot of different reasons of why John decided to use this metaphor, but I want to just pull out a couple. Because if you, like, when I was looking at this passage, there was a part of me that was wondering, why, why do this metaphor? Why not just say Jesus? Why not just say Jesus was in the beginning? Jesus was at these things. Why the word. I'm going to just share four quick reasons. The first part is because it's illustra- it illustrates history. At this point that John, this point that John is describing, the time when Christ entered the world, people didn't know Christ. They didn't know of the word. They didn't know that this was happening. Things had been said, things had been promised that looked forward to it, but they didn't understand. As we see later in the New Testament, it was still a mystery. So John uses this metaphor in a way that helps us to see this, is, this was still a mystery. We didn't know how God was going to fix the problems of the world. But we know that the word is, in fact, Jesus Christ. But this gives us an element of perspective of what it was like. But it also, the second thing it does is it builds anticipation. As we're reading through this passage and we're learning more and more about this word, and which is going to come again in verse 14, and it's talking about the word, we want to see, we want John to say, who is this word? And so John's building this anticipation, who exactly 
is worthy of this praise? Who is this preeminent, this superior word? It also encourages reflection. When, when, when you have different things that you switch what you're expecting, it, it causes us to reflect. There are many passages we read earlier, uh, Justin read from Colossians 1. There are many other passages that say many of the same things that John here says, but they say it very straightforward. They say this is Jesus. Now, what's interesting about that is when we see even Jesus' ministry with John, how many times he said things in a way that wasn't clear unless you had the Spirit. How many times the disciples are, aren't sure what Jesus is talking about? We even see that element here. But it encourages us to stop and reflect what's going on here. I know for my part, I've read that Colossians passage many times. And how many times, though, do I really stop and reflect what is actually being stated? Because if I were to stop and reflect, it would floor me. It would floor each and every one of us to think about this preeminent Christ and what he did. So this causes us to reflect. But then there's this fourth element. There's a richness to the metaphor. That there's something that John is communicating by using this metaphor. We're going to look at that real quick. If you can think, how do we see the word of God used in the Old Testament? What's one of the things we've already talked about? We've made an allusion to this already. What's one of the first things that we see the word of God accomplish? Creation. If you have your Bible, turn real quick to Genesis chapter 1. Go to Genesis chapter 1 real quick. starting in verse 3, and then look at every paragraph after that. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said, verse 6, let there be an expanse in the midst, and it happened. Verse 9, God said. 11, God said. 14, God said. 20, God said. Over and over again, we see that God uses his word to demonstrate as the means of his power. God's power is through his word. Over and over again, we see in creation. We also see Psalm 33, 6 says this, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So when we think of the word that we're seeing here in John, we're going to recall what we've seen of the word, and what we know is that the word of God is power. But the other thing that we see of God's word in the Old Testament is that the word of God is revelation. How many times can we think of in the Old Testament where we hear, see the phrase, and the word of the Lord came to Abram. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. We think of Jonah that we look, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. What are all of those Examples of revelation. See, if God does not speak to his people, if he does not reveal himself, then we can't know God in that way. Yes, it's true that we can see general revelation. We can see that this earth was created. We can see that there was a powerful God that made the heavens. But to know God, 
to know who God's character is, then we need that special revelation. We need his word. So when we think about this metaphor, we think of these two elements, the power of God in speaking and creating, but also in the revelation of God in who he is. Now think about those two concepts. Is there any greater example of the power and revelation of God than we can find in the person of Jesus Christ? Jesus is the greatest example of God's power. Jesus is the greatest example of the revelation of who God is. So when John uses this metaphor of the Word, we can think of the Word who is the power of God. We can think of the Word who is the revelation of God. We can think of the Word who is Jesus. But there's more. There's more that we learn about this Word. Look at chapter, uh, look at uh, John 1 verses 3 through 5. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Not only was this word in the beginning or before the beginning, this word started the beginning. It's the creator. Jesus created all things. All things were made through him. And without him, what was not anything made that was made. The word is the creator. But look on. The word is also our hope. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. This idea of life is the fullness. It's the complete element. It's everything that we need. Jesus later in the Gospel of John says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We see this element. We see this element of Jesus, of God being the life even in creation when we see that the Lord God, this is Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Jesus gave life to humanity. The reason we are alive is because of Jesus. Now, we could say, yeah, but that was in the past. You know, Jesus was the life. He, he gave us life then. But that's not really something present. But if we think back, again, knowing that John is part of a bigger story, this is one bit story, one book in the big story, what do we also know about humanity? Yes, God breathed life into Adam. But what happened shortly thereafter? Death. Adam turned, Adam rebelled against God, and sin entered the world, and through sin, death. And so even here, John is giving a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. When John is saying Jesus is life, yes, he's making an allusion to how Jesus breathed life into humanity, but he's also looking forward that Jesus is the life. He is the one who gives eternal life. He is the one who takes away the death that has entered because of sin. 
Because we are now dead, because we are now in darkness, we need that light. We need that life that is found in Jesus, the fullness of Jesus. We see at the end there that Jesus, though, is the, that the word is the conqueror. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What a beautiful realization. What a beautiful reality that we can place our confidence in that this light, this powerful word, this life cannot be conquered. Again, that's foreshadowing. Because what do we know is going to happen in this gospel? That the one who is the life is going to give his life. He's going to die on the cross. But the darkness will not overcome it. Now this beginning of this prologue, why is this so important to John to start his book here? Why is it so important for him to talk about the preeminence of Christ? He shows us that Christ is the conqueror. He shows us that he is our hope. He is powerful. That he is in relationship with the Father. That he is eternal. That he is God. John does that because if Jesus isn't God, if we do not know that, then all of it's meaningless. Jesus can't accomplish the works that he's saying he's going to accomplish if he is not God. We cannot be saved and place our faith in just a man. Jesus needed to be God. And so that's where John starts. This is the first reason to celebrate because the Word is God. The Word is powerful. The Word is the conqueror. The Word is the life and the light. God reveals His glory and grace through the Word. Now here in verse 6 of our passage, there's a kind of a little bit of an aside John kind of throws out some proof to all of this. It says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, while we're looking at this, this little phrase just seems to just be inserted in there. We have this poem that's kind of going, and then all of a sudden, this little element now, it seems like it doesn't fit, but it goes along with John's bigger goal. Remember, we talked about this last week, that one of John's goal is to witness to who Christ is. There's this Jewish element to this, that when, when someone was on trial, there needed to be more than one witness. If there was just one witness, it was thrown out. So already, right here from the beginning, John the apostle, John the author, is saying, hey, there's another person who's testifying to who this word is. Now, one of the things, though, that we need to realize about how a witness works is that there's a double side to this. Now, last week, we talked about witnesses in a sense for us so that we would believe. All of these things are lit are listed so that we would believe that this is true. But a witness also works for judgment. Because Jesus he is not on trial. Jesus is not on trial of like, is he really God? We will we'll determine that. No, who's on trial 
is the world. Will you believe in Jesus? If we don't, all of these witnesses who testify to who Jesus is will then testify that we did not believe. They'll turn that element to say, hey, John showed you, but you didn't believe him. The signs showed, creation showed, all of these things that bear witness to who Jesus is, then later can also serve to condemn us if we don't believe. We read this in John 3.16. Actually, starting in verse 17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So these things that testify, these different proofs, also serve to condemn if we do not actually turn to the light. Now, now look to this next section, verses 9 through 13. What we're going to see here is this element of both the problem with the world, but also the promise that is given. First, look at what the problem is. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It begins with hope. It says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's something that gives hope. This light that has been talking about is entering into the world. Now, it says that phrase there, which gives light to everyone. Now, there was a part of me when I was reading this, I was like, wait a second, what, what does that mean? Like, is this saying everyone's going to be saved? What's going on here? No, again, we see that double element, that the light either saves those who receive or it condemns those who refuse it. The light is shining. The who Christ is is evident. His works are here. But if we don't look at that light, if we don't accept that light, then it doesn't save. It condemns. It's the judgment He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The creator has come to his creation. Yet the world did not know him. We talked about that celebration aspect. What would keep someone from celebrating if they don't know? What a tragedy that the world does not know its creator, but it gets worse. Because it then describes people who should have known he came to his own who to his own people but his own people did not receive him people who knew but did not believe that's the tragedy that's the problem of this world we aren't celebrating jesus because people don't know where people don't believe 
But this is the promise. This is what comes next. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who received this light that came, who believed, it says, in his name, that idea of in his name is in the totality of who he is. Everything about him that believed in his deity, believed in his signs, believed in his works. To those he gave the right to be called children of God. Already, though, again, John is going to foreshadow something here. It's not because of works. It's not because of how, who you were born. It's not because of those things. It's completely because of God the Father. Who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. But this precious promise that to all who do receive, those who believe, those who know, they can celebrate Jesus. The question is, though, how is this going to happen? Because there have been echoes of this. There have been foreshadowings of this throughout the whole Old Testament. Things that have been pointing forward that this could happen. That there was a way to be reconciled with God. That the problem of death and sin could be resolved. But how? Now when we have this high view of God, where we started with the preeminence, now we look and see this process. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we talk about understanding to appreciate, you will never understand that phrase in its entirety. I don't mean that you can't understand what it's saying. What I mean is we cannot grasp the preeminent Christ, the Word, and all that He was, the fullness of God, and how much of a sacrifice for that Word to become flesh. But if we do not at least attempt to understand it, if we do not attempt to immerse ourselves in that truth, then our celebration will always be lacking. We will not celebrate the truth the way it should be celebrated. These verses are the bridge of reconciliation between verses 1 and 5, this preeminent word, and then the promise of the next paragraph. The word became flesh. Spirit took on flesh. Light descended into darkness. Creator became like his creation. God exchanged the glories of heaven to live in a human dwelling. We can't comprehend how great of a sacrifice that is. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 talks about it, though, that Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He gave of himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
This process of reconciliation, this method of how are we saved, required that the God of the universe came and became also the Son of Man. That the Son of God and the Son of Man came so that he could take our place, so he could be our substitute. John wants us to understand how great of a sacrifice it is. That's why he starts with that preeminence of Christ. The Word not only took on flesh, but the Word also dwelt among us. Some of your Bibles might have a notation there that the Word dwelt is to the idea of pitching a tent. It's establishing a residence. Well, what do we think about when we think about God dwelling among men, when we think back on the Old Testament, first we think of the tabernacle. That God, we finally have this element that God has his people and he's dwelling with his people. Exodus 25 verses 8 through 9 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. God told them, make this tent so that I can dwell in your midst. But that wasn't the fullness of the promise. That was just a foreshadowing of something greater. Later we see the tabernacle. And King Solomon makes this tabernacle, uh, not the tabernacle, the temple. And he makes this grand temple. And this is what he says in 1 Kings 8. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And Solomon's right. Can this house dwell God? And yet God was gracious in dwelling in that house. Again, that wasn't the fullness of the promise. There was something greater. But we see here. That God does not descend to live in a temple or in a tent. God took on flesh to dwell among men, to dwell in the darkness. What a beautiful statement. Something that is incomprehensible in its fullness to us. Because not only does God dwell among men, what we will see is that through Christ, God dwells in man. That the Holy Spirit is given to dwell in us for those who believe. It says later, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory that we've seen is often described as something that is seen. It's described as light. We have finally seen the glory of God. Remember, the Word was something that God reveals. Well, the Son reveals God. We finally can see God. That relationship that was broken. In the garden, there was communion with God. But that was broken. So that man could not see God anymore. And yet now through Christ, through God who takes on flesh, again, there is a way for us to see God, to see his glory full of grace and truth. Again, there's that aside about John. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Again, a witness. 
But it says, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What are we receiving? The reconciliation that we long for is only possible through the fullness of Christ. He has everything that is necessary. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. This idea of, is a grace that is constantly replenished. That every time that you use some of that grace, there's more grace. The grace abounds. Which is what we need because we are always sinning over and over again. But this grace is grace upon grace. John then says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is not saying that the law was evil, that the law is something that needs to be taken away. No, the law was necessary. The law showed us the character of God. It was how God's character of holiness was revealed. It also shows the requirement of God. That God says, look, if you're not holy, if you don't fit this standard, you can't be with me. That's what the law of Moses shows. But grace and truth, something greater, comes through Jesus Christ. Romans 3.20 says that the, by the law, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of law, no one will be justified. No, the law can't save us. The law shows our need to be saved. But grace and truth come through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's hand. He has made him known. If God did not reveal himself to the world, there would be no hope. But God gives us his Son. He made himself known. God revealed his glory. God reveals his glory and grace through the Word who took on flesh and dwelt in darkness. Do we have a reason to celebrate? If you think through these 18 verses, is there any greater reason to celebrate? That the God of the universe would reveal himself, reveal his glory and grace to fallen humanity, to those who dwell in darkness. That he would do that by taking on flesh and making his dwelling place among men. There's no greater reason to celebrate. There's no greater reason to celebrate than knowing that that grace is offered to those who believe, to those who receive. So my question for each of us is, are we 
celebrating. Friend, you might be here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's because you just didn't know. You didn't know this truth. You didn't know this reason to celebrate. If that's the case, then I urge you, receive and believe. Place your faith in only Jesus Christ, in his work of redemption, on, of dying on the cross, being buried, raising, being risen again, paying for our sins. That is offered to us. Know and believe so you can celebrate. But my greater, or my other concern, maybe not greater, but my concern is for us as a church, are we celebrating this? Are we seeking to understand what exactly was this incarnation of Christ, what it was that Christ did for us? And if we understand it, do we care? Do we appreciate? We are celebrating today around this country freedom. Freedom from tyranny almost 300 years ago. We celebrate Jesus because he gives us freedom from sin. We celebrate Jesus because he gives life to the dead. He gives light to the blind. That's a reason to celebrate.